0: Welcome to the Silk Road Mountain Race podcast, a 12-part series covering an epic new bikepacking race through the remote mountains of Kyrgyzstan. I'm Lucy Cahoon, and in the course of the series, you'll be hearing all about the race and the riders, as well as learning a bit about this spectacular part of Central Asia. I hope you enjoy the show. How he might get lucky with you The marquee's harder than hell It's rather than just a squeaky Michelle But he did want to break the spell so act cool By way of background about me as the host, I'm a long distance runner, having done a fair amount of ultra distance races in various countries and also represented Scotland and Great Britain. But as far as cycling goes, I'm an absolute novice and my only experience is living with somebody who makes, rides, eats, sleeps and dreams bikes. I've managed to twist the race organizer's arm into letting me host the podcast and it's been an absolute pleasure getting to speak to a whole variety of people about what makes them ride their bikes and also meet some Kyrgyz friends to learn a bit about their country. The Silk Road Mountain Race starts on the 18th of August in the capital of Kyrgyzstan, Bishkek. It covers over 1,700 kilometres and 26,000 metres of climb. That's over three times the height of Everest. If all that's not tough enough, there's a cutoff of 14 days, although the winning rider is expected to be in in approximately nine days. We've got over 90 riders from all around the world taking part and we'll be catching up with them along the way to get a feel for just how difficult the route is. It's the first time an event of this scale has been hosted in Kyrgyzstan and it's going to be incredible to see how everybody experiences this remote and friendly country. I'm pretty sure it's also the first race I've ever come across with a checkpoint held in a yurt. This 12-part series has three introductory episodes Then we'll have eight episodes live from the field and one final wrap-up episode. I'll be talking to a selection of riders about their expectations and preparations. Then we'll be bringing you daily reporting from the race teams, live updates on weather conditions and other news, as well as an overview of the leaderboard and the race positions. We'll hear from riders about their progress and the challenges they're facing. And we're also going to be exploring Kyrgyzstan itself, To get a feel for the culture of the country, talking to locals and expats about what it's like to live there and what the philosophy of the country is like. It's been called the Switzerland of Central Asia, so looking forward to getting an understanding of what that means. We're delighted to have support for this podcast from Shand Cycles. Shand is a UK bike brand who manufactures a range of sports, touring and expedition bikes for use on and off road. Their bikes are all made to order with custom frame sizes, a choice of different component builds and a huge range of paint colours to choose from. Check out shancycles.com to see more about what they do. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and please do leave us a rating or a review. Also remember to check out the show notes, which has more detail about the race, including the route profile, the maps and also a race tracker. In this first episode, I'll be talking to Nelson Trees. Nelson is the race director and himself a very experienced bikepacker, having done routes such as the transcontinental and a more extreme commute home from work, starting in Shanghai and finishing in Paris. In this interview, we'll talk about how Nelson came up with his crazy idea for the Silk Road mountain race, what it's all about, what kind of thing the riders can expect, and some input into how to prepare for such an adventure. We'll also learn about his philosophy behind the race. So without further ado, it's over to Nelson. Right, so first up, I'm joined by Nelson Trees, who's the reason that the podcast exists and the reason that uh, everybody's getting ready to cycle around Kyrgyzstan. Uh, Nelson, you're the race director and uh, expert in all things cycling Kyrgyzstan. I'm not sure about that, but yeah. (laughs) Tell us a bit about you, who you are, where you live, and what on earth possessed you to uh, come up with such an
1: epic adventure. Yeah, my name is Nelson, and uh, I'm the organiser of the Silk Road Mountain Race. And yeah, what possessed me to come up with this race? Um, There's a number of things. I, I got into cycling long distances because I rode home from Shanghai to Paris when I was, I was living out there
0: <laughs> oh, for a while. Right, hold on, just stop. I love the way you just um, threw that in. When people ride home, they might mean from the office. So what were you doing in Shanghai and why did you decide to ride back to Paris?
1: Um, I was out there, um, well, my parents have been there for 10 years. And so I was out there studying Chinese. Wow. And then I had, I entered a, got into a master's program. So I had And I knew I was going to get into that in September. And so I had six, and it was around February. So I had six months. I had, well, originally a few friends that were up for it that were keen to come back because I was thinking I'd never seen any of those countries. I had six months. I had some people who were keen to cycle home. So that was really how it came together. And then they mostly dropped out. So we ended up being two of us.
0: I wonder why that was.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there was one had uh, a girlfriend who didn't wasn't too happy not to see him for six months, and the other one apparently had a career, so you know that away as well. Darling, pesky
0: career. <laughs> yeah, I don't, know
1: what, I don't know what he was thinking, but anyway, but there was one who had no girlfriend and no career, so he was fine and he came with. Me.
0: <laughs> so how long did it take
1: you? Uh, six months, which. Uh... Honestly, it's a little bit quick for that kind of distance. There was lots of times when people would invite us in or say, oh, you know, you want to stay, do this, do that. And we're like, we've got to carry on.
0: So you're a glutton for punishment. So you did that. And that was what year, sorry?
1: That was 2013.
0: Uh, why Why Kyrgyzstan then? Of all the places that you traveled through, did that have the most impression on you? Or did you find that that was just a natural kind of cycling playground? Why that in particular?
1: Yeah, so... I didn't actually went we were there. We didn't spend that long in, in Kyrgyzstan, but just just riding through and the the little you can see from the main roads. I mean the the scenery, the mountains. I mean I've always always definitely been more of a mountain person than anything else, and so that backdrop was just I knew I, I knew I wanted to come back. So at that point, I hadn't done any of this long distance racing or anything, so I had no I had no idea you know no particular idea of when or how. And then there was the people. I mean even you know we were there for a little over a little over a week, but. We were invited in all the time. People were, were you know, offering us a place to stay and, and talking to us and, you know, super interested and really friendly.
0: So, and then in terms of organising the race itself, you've obviously uh, done extensive uh, and sort of minute, detailed recce of it. So how many times now have you been back and how long have you spent there?
1: Um, so I've been back twice now, last summer. And so there's one main trip I was there for about a month and a half. So then I was by myself, and I was riding the route, or well, well, the route and other sections of route that are not in the route now. <laughs> there was quite a bit of, I think I rode about, I don't know, two and a half thousand kilometres for, for the what ended up being about 1,700k. And so there were there were a few dead ends and some, uh, some very interesting experiences, some very, very wild places that I went to that um, will not be in the race.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Probably for good reason. It looks hard enough anyway.
1: Yeah, I think I think we well. The aim is to make it tough but doable for the average, well-prepared cyclist.
0: For for the average nutter that wants to cycle seventeen hundred kilometers.
1: Yeah, for that kind of average <laughs> nutter, it should be like you know a challenge but doable. Nothing to take lightly, but but yeah, that's that's the aim. So I'm not sure. You know, we'll see for the first edition the sort of estimate, and then we'll see how how we adjust it in uh, in future races.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's quite a balance with endurance sport in particular, perhaps, is is how to make it tough enough that it appeals to people and is not just another race, but then not to make it so hard that you only have one person complete.
1: Yeah, it won't be quite like that. I think, uh, yeah, there should be more than one finisher. (laughs) Okay.
0: (laughs) So how many people now, as of today, so we're eight weeks out roughly from the race start, how many people are on the start line?
1: We have just a little bit under 100. I think we're at 98 to 99.
0: Okay, and tell us about the nationalities, ages, gender, balance.
1: Uh so we have twenty six nationalities, so it's really quite a quite a diverse group. Or we have about a quarter are women. And then ages. I think the youngest is twenty three, and then we get up to sixty.
0: So really widespread. Though. Yeah,
1: yeah, quite a lot quite quite wide and um i think the average is about 38 years old
0: and did you do any i know for a lot of endurance events um well obviously um, my background's running rather than cycling but for a lot of the tougher races they do a vetting and you've got to prove your pedigree is that what you
1: did for so we wanted to get a balance between making it too exclusive and also, but also at the same time, make sure that people had the experience. So there was an application process where you had to tell, had to describe, you know, what your, your cycling experience is, what your motivation is to race, uh, why you want to race rather than just ride in Kyrgyzstan, because there's, there's a big difference in that as well. And so based on those answers, then we decided whether or not the person had enough experience. And then there was the, the application process was a mix of choosing people that were, well, there was, there was a question of, of, of their background, of their, their nationality, their gender there was a priority on, on getting women in the race because they're they're quite underrepresented in the sport in general.
0: Yeah, brilliant.
1: Yeah, we didn't want to exclude anyone who was a bit lacking experience, but basically told them that they would have a chance to to prove themselves or to do a ride or to, to go on a trip. And in the end actually it wasn't most people actually had enough experience really. I mean it's gonna be a big, big challenge and a little bit above and beyond for, for quite a few. But they're not they're not going into this, you know, this is not their first race, this is not their first big ride.
0: And they'll certainly be fitted by the end.
1: Oh, definitely, they'll ride to fitness. I did that in the Highland Trail and it wasn't too bad.
0: I oh, did you. Right, so tell us about yeah, so I I'm going to come back to ask you more about the race but tell us a bit then about your your epic because yeah, so you've just finished Highland Trail was that that's 550 miles, is it? Yeah,
1: 550 miles.
0: My goodness, So is that is that a sort of short walk in the park for you compared with um, Shanghai to Paris then.
1: Well, it's not definitely not a walk in the park the Highland Trail. It's uh it's a tough race for the number of kilometers. It's it's probably tough. Well, it depends. I mean, it's it's not at high altitude, it's not as remote. It's Definitely wild and um, but compared to the Silk Road race, Silk Road Mountain race, the big difference is there's a lot more hiker bike, a lot more pushing and carrying a and,
0: uh, different kind of fitness, presumably like upper body to to be carrying a heavy laden bike
1: yeah so yeah i wasn't I wasn't that used to that coming from mainly road riding and I't a huge amount of pushing
0: right okay, and you've done am I right in saying that you've done transcontinental twice?
1: Uh, Three times, but I didn't finish the first time. But the last two times, yeah.
0: Right. So how would you say something like that? I mean, that's that's an established, uh, well-known endurance ride. How would that compare with the Silk Road?
1: Well, the aim was to make it, was actually to, to make a very similar format in terms of the the size and the scope of the challenge. I mean, the terrain is very different, and so it had to be adapted quite a lot. But the goal was that people should be able to complete it in in two weeks, which makes it you know, reasonably accessible for for most people in, who have another job or you know other things, other responsibilities. So, do you have an
0: idea in your head of when the leader might finish?
1: Um, I'm thinking about a week.
0: A week, my goodness! Wow! And tell us about so. Um... The cutoff, again, with endurance thing, it's always um, it's quite delicate, isn't it? Because some people feel that there shouldn't be any cutoffs and they should be allowed to finish their adventure. But then if you've got um, security and trackers and marshals and things, it's are practical reasons why there ought to be. So tell us a bit about how you have set the cutoffs and whether if people miss it, they they are still seen
1: as completing. So there's, yeah, that's a little bit of a more complicated topic, I think. So we haven't got a strict, strict cutoff in terms of if you miss a checkpoint. Op- the, the checkpoints all have opening times. They're the opening and the closing. There's, there's three checkpoints throughout the race. But there isn't a strict cutoff in terms of if they miss one of those checkpoints, then they're entirely out of the race. What they do need to understand, though, is that Kyrgyzstan is a very wild place. And our control cars that are, will be riding the route and keeping an eye on riders, if they miss the cutoff, then those cars are going to be much further away. And so then we cannot guarantee you know even the minimal level of of a presence that that we would have we we would if you were within those cutoffs so there's definitely a safety factor to consider if people decide to carry on their ride. The other thing is if they so if they do miss the cutoff then they can't have a spot in the final general classification so you wouldn't have you know if they come 80 second or third or fourth well it wouldn't be it would be in within the cutoff if they were third but anyway um so they wouldn't get finishing spots but they can still have a completion they'll have a recorded finishing time and you would have you know you finished the SRMR so it's, there's a little distinction and but the main thing is is safety I mean people need to think very carefully if they want to carry on because the, the, the infrastructure of the race is not there anymore.
0: And in terms of then um, safety from a um, physical point of view uh, um given how remote it is how did you set about uh, a balance of still making it feel an unsupported adventure and putting in a level of uh, oversight, and particularly in terms of, say, medics?
1: Uh, yeah, so this is something that is complicated in Kyrgyzstan. and there, There's still an ongoing discussion with the government about, about ext- um, more things we can do. But essentially, as long as people are racing, then they are entirely on their own, is entirely unsupported. Only really providing information to people to to on where resupply is, on where on where those kinds of things are. But yeah, if somebody does get into trouble, then they do have there is an SOS function on all the on all the GPS trackers, and then we will coordinate the best response possible. But in the context of Kyrgyzstan, where people, riders need to understand that you know help will take a long time to get there.
0: So it's a lot more a lot more self reliant than some endurance races where uh, the checkpoints have medics who assess whether you're fit to carry on so that that judgment very much sits with the rider
1: yeah there won't be uh, there won't be medics at the, at the checkpoints it really is up to people to take that decision for themselves
0: and from your experience then of riding there a lot what would you say are likely to be the biggest challenges other than obviously the extremity of just the, the distance and the climb itself
1: i think resupply is one of the big ones especially in a race context so when i was scouting i didn't have the pressure of time and i didn't have you know i could I could carry a bit more equipment. I did have a stove. I had, I had things that make you a little bit more or less reliant on resupply points. Whereas here, resupplies is something that people need to think about quite a lot. I've given them the information for so the main resupply points that everyone can count on. There's the worst section for that is around checkpoint two, where, there's a, where you need a border zone permit and you're near China and there's very few people. And there, there's about, it's about 300 kilometers between resupply points. So that
0: presumably affects all your planning in terms of... <laughs> what equipment to have on the bike, what capacity for liquids, all the rest of it. Yeah, any advice for for how best to manage weight versus
1: uh, need? Well, I guess it depends what your aims are in the race. I think if I were all out racing, I probably wouldn't bring a stove, but I would also be ready to not be amazingly enjoying myself when it comes to what I can eat during the race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, you, you can eat just cold food, but it probably won't be a great time. There's, you know, you can buy bread, there's various sort of Snickers and other bars and dried nuts and things, but it will be tough. But then, if you're if you're not aiming for a, for a, you know for a overall win or to finish really up in, in the top places, then I think maybe bringing a stove could be interesting. For the pairs, I think a stove would be good to have. And yeah, it wouldn't you know, shared between two riders; it's not a huge deal. And even if they don't use it, it's not that much extra weight. Even as a solo, having that backup of a stove could be interesting.
0: Yeah, that could be a little treat, your luxury to look forward to at the end of a long day.
1: Yeah, for sure, and the, the possibility of having a hot meal if conditions are difficult.
0: So tell us then. Is it, well, I guess sorry, I'm diving straight into the detail, but we haven't actually set out the stats. So first of all, tell us the stats of the race.
1: So it's about thousand seven hundred kilometres for twenty six thousand metres of climbing, and then the big the big difficulty is that it all happens at quite high altitudes. So there's a number of passes. The highest passes are around three thousand eight hundred. And um, 50 yeah between 2800 and meters
0: so how on earth do you acclimatize to if you're from a low-lying country and you don't have the the luxury of preparing at altitude how can or should riders prepare and and what are the real risks of going like setting off on a race and you know within i think it's day one or two you're going straight up high aren't
1: yeah you? so so almost immediately you, you go to pretty much as high as, as high as the race goes and that was essentially from what we've been told by um, altitude experts is that essentially anyone who comes who's not acclimatized even over the duration of the race I mean there was no way to make the route um not have not reach those really high altitudes before but you know before that they they would actually be acclimatized so we preferred to have it Immediately at the beginning, which is closer to Bishkek, closer to the best medical care, um, the riders will be more, will be much closer to each other, and so the control cars will be in a much better position to help if there is any, if there are any problems. There's a better way to, to look after the riders.
0: Right. Okay. So, are there any risks then? I mean, what what are the well, people know the general effects of altitude sickness and things, but would you say that starting at um, at low level in the city and then achieving those kind of heights quickly is that what sort of risks are there and do you think that might damage a lot of people's race?
1: Um, so the main risk is to get altitude sickness you can you can get those altitudes you can get acute mountain sickness so those you can get headaches i mean you can it can um degenerate to to worse symptoms but the main thing is that people should listen to their to their bodies if you have a splitting headache or you're starting to feel really slow then you need to slow down you need to potentially stop it's not just a question of your you know it, it can be a, a health issue you can develop health health issues there are very serious uh consequences about it we're not at Quite at their really high altitudes where those, those are are very likely, but it is possible if you ignore your splitting headache, if you ignore the fact that you're feeling really slow and you still push on, then yeah, you can get yourself into a difficulty from a medical perspective, but also you could just, you could just simply end your race. I mean, if you go too hard, too fast, then. You're going to take days to recover, and then by that time, then if you've already booked a return flights, then there's nothing much you'll be able to do, and you'll just bring your race to a very quick end.
0: And I guess, in general, even leaving aside the altitude, um, start slow would be a, a pretty good uh, caution to people doing any endurance event, wouldn't it?
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, even on even you know the the races that I've done, I've always started out slow, and then you see you see how your rhythm. How you are in your rhythm, and then you can gradually build on that. I mean, there's it's a very long race. It's going to take even for the fastest. It's going to take over a week. So there's actually no interest in sprinting up the first pass, especially as there's these risks of you know of, of the altitude. So that's what I i will really hammer home to to every rider, and especially those who are, are maybe not acclimatized, is to really take it easy the first day and listen to your body at least the first day. <laughs> if not more.
0: On a a sort of comparative level, my experience of of doing long races and you you set off and some people are like rabbits out of the traps and you either think they're either spectacularly good or very misguided and it often turns out to be the latter.
1: Huge difference in the level of people that some people can absolutely sprint, you know, the whole distance. But it's hard to resist. I mean, I know experienced riders who, when everyone's out there at the front and they're all pushy hard, I mean, it's rare that these races don't start a little bit too fast. Yeah. (laughs) I saw on the Highland Trail people who were speeding off and then I was overtaking them later in the day.
0: Happy days. So tell us about um, what, the, as well as it being a, a huge physical and mental challenge, obviously you've designed a route to really showcase Kyrgyzstan and to give people a, a sort of whistle-stop tour of some of the, the best parts. So how did you come about and what, what are the highlights that people will see on the route?
1: Uh, so first I have to thank um, one of the guys from bikepacking.com. Uh, Joe Cruz, who did a they, they did a route crossing the the Tian Shan, and so there's there's a there's a big chunk of that in the race, which he did a really good job of uh, of yeah, like it's a really nice route south of Issyk Kul Lake. Um, so the idea was was to explore the southeast, the east of uh, of Kyrgyzstan, which if you look on a map and you try to look for towns and people, <laughs> you start to realise that there really isn't very much out there. The a population that is very very sparse out there. Um, so the route. It's it's the result of having explored having explored these places and and seen what is possible on a bike.
0: So you trying did, but were you conscious of thinking I want to show people the lakes, I want to show them the mountains, I want to show them the valleys? You know, was there a sort of tourist um, element to d- designing the ideal route?
1: Um, I don't know if there's a tourist element. I mean, uh, Kyrgyzstan is not a place where there's these you know these specific not many these big highlights of this is you know this place you have to see or that place you have to see it's more generally that the whole mountainous background is stunning and then there are there are places that are more or less and that you'd like to go to so there is we, we did pick out a few highlights that mainly as, as the checkpoints so song is probably the most famous high altitude alpine lake and so that's uh that's a checkpoint one and so that's a place where there's a, there's a lot of yurts, there's a lot of locals that, that bring up their, uh, their herds for the summer months.
0: So, so how do you think they might react? If you're, a, if you're minding your own business as a Kyrgyz uh, nomadic uh, sheep farmer and suddenly you see <laughs> a dozen uh, lycra-clad cyclists coming past, what's that? that might be an interesting um, meeting of cultures.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think there is, especially as these places... So Kyrgyzstan does see cycle tourists, but more on the beaten track. It's Kyrgyzstan, so there isn't really on the beaten track, but the... <laughs> the the main roads and the ma- the main places where people ride through but in these other places the gravel routes and some of the more remote parts yeah they were already when I was by myself they were quite surprised that I was there and they were very interested and curious and they were, they wanted to meet and they would invite you in just to just to have that exchange so i think yeah it's going to be quite a surprise when they see a 100 cyclists coming through the same route
0: <laughs> wow wow i love the fact I, i've never read trip notes that um involves the phrase your card will be checked in a yurt
1: <laughs> yeah, so that, I think that's. I'm not sure if that's a first, but maybe that maybe there's some races in Mongolia where they do that. But I think for an unsupported bikepacking race, the brevet card stamped in a yurt.
0: Brilliant. Um, in terms of the terrain, I think one of the biggest challenges from from the conversations I've seen amongst the riders in their preparations is how on earth do you decide what kind of bike so you've got that classic sort of weighing up of weight versus performance versus space to carry what you need and then people if it's anything like other races the more you look at what other people are doing that can put you off your own game plan and what you know suits you so tell us about the bike i don't know if it was one or different bikes that you rode when you were out there and any tips about what might be the ideal setup
1: yes yeah, so this is quite the especially on the bike setup this is something that's Really, quite interesting to see, really, in a race context. So, the first, um, the first trip I did, the, the big one where I was checking out most of the route, I was on a hardtail mountain bike, so I had front suspension, it was, uh, yeah, um, with about two inch tyres, I think it was 2. 2.1s, and that worked really well. Uh, I don't, Think you need the front suspension necessarily? Mainly, it's it's gravel roads. I mean, they vary in how good they are. They 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 can be quite smooth, but they can also be really rough. But there's still there's still roads generally. So it's not there's very little single track. That doesn't really exist that much in Kyrgyzstan. There are some sections where you'll need to push. Overall, they're quite short, even if the two are quite long. <laughs> But in overall percentage terms, they're quite short. Um, I think probably the ideal bike would be a rigid mountain bike with about two-inch tyres. I then rode it. The second trip I did, I rode on a cyclocross with 35c cyclocross tyres. And that was okay. I mean, I, I could ride. It wasn't that I had to, to walk or anything. But um, in terms of vibrations and the impacts transferred to your body, it will be a lot tougher.
0: Oh, right. Okay. Okay. Okay.
1: And so there I was doing, I did. A, we did a couple of days with maybe 100k. But during the race, you have to do about around 120 every day just to finish within the time. So you would definitely feel it for sure.
0: And do you think, um, obviously, because if you're in the middle of nowhere and and the self-reliance element perhaps applies more when you can't just go off route into a major town to get equipment or resupply. So do you think um, there might be an element of, um, I was going to say Heath Robinson, but sort of, um, you know, duct tape and uh, rubber bands if things go wrong do you think people how, how much spare equipment for the bike are people going to take or do you think other than spare tubes that sort of it
1: um i think definitely people should have zip ties duct tape um probably a little sewing kit if in case they get a really bad uh, sidewall rip they can't boot, or they can't just uh, patch if they're, right, or plug if they're running tubeless. Uh, any major breaks, though, if you break a wheel or you, I don't know, you know something serious, you crack a frame. I mean that, unless you can zip tie it, <laughs> it's, it's pretty much game over. I mean, the only bike shops you may be able to find something in Marin and something in Caracol is a bit more well it could be, it depends where you are on the route but Caracol could be another option but those places, it's very basic so perhaps if it's a steel frame or a steel fork then yeah, you could possibly find someone to to weld it up, not in Bishkek but anyway, all the decent bike shops with sort of western equipment are are in Bishkek so unless you break something right at the beginning or right at the end, then, then yeah I mean it's.
0: So the advice is don't break anything?
1: Advice is ride conservatively don't smash your bike. <laughs> also for you, because if you come off, then as well, everything's very remote. So yeah, ride conservatively. The number one, number one thing. We did, we did change the rules ever so slightly on on helping other riders because of this. So basically, in other races, it's the duty is on both riders, both the helped and the helping rider. Both of you would get disqualified or not being the general classification if you helped. But in this, for us, we said, if you see a rider who does need help, say for, you know, whatever reason, say their, their pump is broken, you know, so it's something really basic, it's very simple, but without a pump, they, they can't do anything. There, the rider who then offers his pump would not get disqualified.
0: Right, okay.
1: The rider who does get help would, would be out of the general classification, but the rider who's helping doesn't because we thought, you know, it's better to be able to finish the ride rather than you know have these extremely strict rules on
0: that yeah and i think that's a nice sort of camaraderie and uh uh, philosophy as well because you've got to look out for each other especially you know the more remote you are you've got to without you know it's it's not cheating it's you know it's helping somebody
1: it's it's also what this this whole community is about i mean the these big races everyone so everyone's competing of course even at the sharp end of the race you know right at the front but even those people are looking out for each other and everyone is again is in this big challenge just to finish the race is is already a big a big achievement so there's not this you know absolutely cut through attitude
0: i think that's lovely about endurance sport though isn't it because you know you you dig so deep into yourself and it's not a glory thing at all and and if you don't start out humble you you pretty well are guaranteed to be humbled by the end of it yeah for sure so i was <laughs> i was going to ask you about the um I don't know if it's the unspoken, but it's certainly worrying a few riders. Uh, wolves. Tell us about wolves.
1: About wolves? Oh, yes. So I, I think I scared people a little bit in the race manual. <laughs> <laughs> the, the line with, uh, yes, Kyrgyzstan, that does have a healthy population of wolves. but um...
0: <laughs> Healthy or hungry?
1: <laughs> healthy or hungry. So in summer, not hungry, so you'll be fine. But no, um, I put it in the manual because, yes, there are wolves. I think there are bears as well, but... Honestly, no. You will you will not see any wolves.
0: Really? Would really? it maybe just hear them at night?
1: Uh, I didn't even hear any. I think they are the Kyrgyz shepherds shoot wolves, so they stay away. Um, in winter, it would be another story, maybe when they get desperate. But uh, in summer, no, they're they're off far away in even more remote areas than the race goes i, w- I wouldn't worry about wolves
0: well, okay good uh, worry about anything else any creepy crawlies or the weather tell us what would be the main concerns other than just hoping your legs work the next day
1: um so yeah uh, the weather can be i mean this is it's the best time of year for it. So the, that's why we chose the end of August. Um, the river's at the lowest. Uh, it should be the hottest. The weather should be the nicest. But, you know, I mean, when I was there in July, uh, I think like two or three of the passes, it was snowing. You can you can wake up with a dusting of snow. That's that's totally possible. It's, they're big mountains. So any kind of mountain weather is possible. I had two days of straight rain. We just never stopped raining. So I hope that doesn't happen. But it's a serious possibility.
0: In terms of... Um... Shelter, so if you're in the hills, well mountains, sorry, um, are there likely to be covered, I don't know, little caves or anything that could give you some protection from the elements?
1: Uh, nothing much. When you're above 3,000, there won't be any trees. It's big, open grassland, basically, so there's not much to cover. So that's why everyone needs to have either a tent or a good biffy bag, somewhere where they can really get shelter. So if you're cold and you're wet and you're miserable, you need to be able to get in your sleeping bag, in your bivy bag, and warm up and have enough layers for that. I mean, this is my experience with Transcontinental, where I would have the absolute minimum. I I didn't even have a, even a warm jacket; just had a rain rain jacket. Is doable when you're near hotels, near bus stops, near you know, there's there's shelter, there's a bit of civilization. Whereas here, you really need to be able to get warm by yourself.
0: So, as a race organizer, and knowing knowing all the potential pitfalls and just how grueling an event it is. Are you? Do you worry and will you worry constantly, despite having done immaculately detailed planning?
1: Um, yes, definitely. <laughs> I, I mean, it's it's the first time it's happening. So I don't know to what extent or how many riders might get into difficulty, how tough it will be. There are lots of things that can happen. I mean, if, if we happen to get really bad weather, I mean, that can completely transform the race. You know, if there's there's two or three days of, of really heavy rain, I mean, that, that can grind the whole thing to stop you you never know.
0: Sorry to interrupt but I don't know how this works with something of of this proportion so can you or would you ever um, cancel it is that even a feasible option once it's started given that people are so spread out?
1: Well, yeah, it'll be complicated because of the lack of uh, phone coverage, actually actually, catching up with the riders. I think we could do it. Um, I don't know, we'd have to see what, what the, if the situation would call for it, but it would, it would have to be relatively extreme. But if, yeah, I mean, if, if the riders' uh, safety is in question, then definitely, I mean, we wouldn't hesitate.
0: Yeah. So tell us about the team and the infrastructure then. So obviously, you've come up with the route and, and there's the a main man behind it, but these things take a huge amount of preparation, and logistical yeah, prep. So who, who are your team and what will they be doing during the race?
1: Um, so we're gonna have three control cars out in the field. So we have uh there's my main uh, my, my partner Jeff Liu, who's also raced uh, Transcontinental three times. He finished all of them. <laughs> Um, and then there's a lot of a lot of friends and family and volunteers coming out. So there's going to be we're going to have a 24 seven HQ in Bishkek, which will be there to coordinate between the control cars because the control cars are all going to have satellite phones and they'll be in constant contact, but they won't have internet. And so making that link to the outside world to concern family, friends of riders, to yeah to connect the two basically the teams in the field and the general infrastructure of the race. Um, we'll also have volunteers at uh, all three checkpoints. So their the main responsibility is to stamp people's brevet cards as they come through. There will be, yeah, there's going to be a bit of infrastructure, the, the start and the finish of the race. And uh, that's, that's pretty much it.
0: And the finish, I, I see you've promised large amounts of beer.
1: <laughs> so we promised large amounts of beer. There will be beer available. We, we checked because uh, the owner, this is, this is an Islamic country, and we've checked with the, with the guest house owner, the, the main guest house we're going to be with, but um, there's no problem. So he said there's no, no hard alcohol allowed. But uh, beer will be fine. But I don't think anyone is. I've been to these after parties of these kinds of races before, and it's not the most wild of parties. I was,
0: yeah. I was just imagining that. Usually, it's just sort of uh, strewn with bodies in various states of uh, decomposition, isn't it? It
1: seems <laughs> to last until about one a.m. max, and then people have had two beers or three beers, and they're <laughs> already out of it. <laughs> so yeah, his concern of hard alcohol, I think, is is not. A yes.
0: Lot of <laughs> just sleep sleep and calorie refuel
1: it'll be it's more about you know telling the stories of the road of what's happened to you and what ridiculous situations you got into and, and how you survived this storm or that storm or
0: but presumably something like that i mean i, I the word endurance is is funny isn't it because it covers so much and i feel a real fraud now i mean you know i've only ever done sort of long in inverted commas rides for uh, sorry runs for like 17 hours which is absolutely nothing that's you know you're still back in time for in time for bed um, so I can't really begin to get my head around something of this magnitude but presumably so what, what you've gone through in terms of you know weeks possibly two weeks of riding and the sort of solitude and the challenges and the huge highs and lows it must take a very long time to process and to remember and to relive you know probably weeks and months after you get home
1: yeah there can be a real a real down after this kind of event because you're really part of something special and it's, it's such a huge challenge and it has such a big impact on you even if you're not it's not conscious maybe on, at the time but definitely I mean for just the recovery takes a long time and then on a the mental mental side I mean it's it's tough you need to be able to to readjust to normal life after
0: and and um, in terms of the prizes there aren't any so for some people um you know obviously it not this because that's not the motivation but um, is that quite strange for some people if they want to really work themselves hard and have a podium finish or a medal or their glory so why did you decide not to award prizes it's
1: it's that it's a it's fundamentally it's that it's, it's a gentleman's race you do it for the experience you do it for the, the the pride the achievement, rather than for any kind of monetary gain i mean this is it's pretty central to the whole, it's very much a grassroots community where people just have, the, they just all they need, need is a challenge and a few people to have the same idea to make a race, to see, you know, see what people are capable of. And I think that's, it's, it's much more about that. And yeah, the, the podium is important. You, you know, the people that absolutely surpass themselves and do these incredible things. But for me, the person who inspired this a lot for, for Michael, who was the organizer of the Transcontinental. And he had a a very big impact on me and on and on doing this race, organizing this race. He was actually maybe even more interested in the mid-pack, in the guys at the back, in the people who are surpassing themselves at their own level. So they may not be the fastest, but in many cases, they've actually suffered more. They may even have pushed themselves harder for their level than the guys who win it and for me it's that's the main thing about these events is that of the, all the 100 people that take part it will have an impact on their life and it will um it will show them things that you know they 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 would never thought they were capable of and you see it from the people who the volunteers that I'm getting for this race for example there was some there was a guy who who had done the transcontinental and wanted to give back to the community because of the impact it's had on his life and i don't know where he finished but i i don't think it was it wasn't at the sharp end of the race but it, it doesn't matter
0: and will you, when you stand on the start line, will any bit of you wish you were taking part?
1: Oh, definitely. I'm already jealous. You don't
0: <laughs> sneak in a wee ride.
1: No, no, I can't. <laughs> I, I think there's, there's far too much responsibility to be able to ride it myself. Maybe in a future edition, but no, I mean, it's not for nothing that I organise this. I mean, it's, it's something that I would really want to do. But unfortunately, I'll, I'll be watching from one of the cars. Good.
0: And so you mentioned future editions. What's the plan?
1: So it is planned to be a yearly event. We'll see how the first one goes, of course. But um, yeah, we should have have this as a yearly event. We want to update the routes every year to keep it fresh. I think Kyrgyzstan probably is already interesting enough that we will get lots of people interested for future editions. But... Also, to have people who want to come back and they don't want to do exactly the same thing again. So we have some pretty ambitious plans for where the route wants or want the route to go. So the S, so we'll see how people go and how many people get where at one point. And you know, if if it was too hard, too easy, I mean, we'll adjust it. But the it's more, it's not necessarily distance. I mean, I can I can always keep that you know, adjust that so that it's appropriate for the right number of finishers. you know, make it tough enough, but it's not, you know, but it's more that the places I want to go are a little bit more, well, more wild. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah, yeah, there's some, there's some very, very cool places to go in Kyrgyzstan. So we'll actually be out there, out there scouting that after the race. Oh, right, Rito,
0: so you're staying out afterwards, eh?
1: Yeah, there's places that if they're in the race next year, one will require building a rope bridge and... Of course it will. The <laughs> other one... The other one will have a river cross. The checkpoint would have to be us crossing riders across a river.
0: Wow. Wow! I love it. This is more extreme by the minute.
1: Yeah. So we'll see the feasibility of all that. But um, yeah, those, those are, I don't know. We'll see. It's, that's the only way to make those sections of route possible and not so mad. Well, not not basically to, to keep risks uh, managed. Okay.
0: Well, finally, this is oh, my head is spinning with the enormity of what people are about to do, and it's making me feel very lazy. Um, <laughs> Just say a little bit about um, the organize, uh, the organizers, the sponsors who've helped you make this happen.
1: Yeah, so we have uh, a few major sponsors. So Pedalit is our title sponsor. And they were been in it from the beginning, basically, when it was just me and the idea of doing a race here. And before I could have anything to show, basically, because I was I went out to Kyrgyzstan. I said, you know, I want to go out to Kyrgyzstan. I want to spend some time out there. Um, Scouting the route for a race, I have no idea if it's possible. I need to see if I can find local partners. Uh, is the route even, you know, is it, is it feasible? What will happen? And so immediately they were they were on board. And so from the beginning they 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 helped produce uh, they helped produce the teaser video. There's um, there'll be rider caps, all kinds of things like that. So yes, they, they really helped to make it happen. Um, apart from that, then we also have Shan, as our main bike sponsor. And, uh, it's thanks to Shan that we'll be having this podcast during the race. And they were just a really good fit. I mean, they make, they make bikes for these kinds of adventures and they're, they're really on the same wavelength.
0: Nomads Land, I think
1: one of yours. Nomads Land. So Nomads Land is our local partner. So they are the they're a a tour agency that specialises in well they they do the more classic tours but they also are interested in bringing people to the wild the wildest places in Kyrgyzstan. So during the planning of the route initially they were also they were really instrumental. They helped a lot to figure out what was possible, what was not possible. We still had many cases where we were just looking at a map and it was, oh, I think someone's been down there, we're not entirely sure. There's a... <laughs> This is the kind of places that, this is that's not actually in the race this year, but um, that place where they're saying, yeah, we ha- I haven't personally been down there, but I know that they were losing um, six-wheeled military vehicles down there. <laughs> Slightly boggy terrain with big vehicles, they get stuck, whereas cyclists are fine. And actually, when I, went down there, when I went down there, the road was good. It was not a problem at all. That's not what riders will be experiencing, though, because I've been down there and ridden the whole route, and so I know what to expect. We have a few people, there's a couple of riders who are, who are riding the route beforehand, and there's, I've had lots of interest from other cycle tourists who've seen the route and said, oh, you know, I'm not racing, but you know, is the route available? So,
0: Oh, wow. Oh, so you might have sparked a whole influx of people then.
1: Well, I hope that this could be a showcase event for Kyrgyzstan. Don't necessarily people won't necessarily say, "Oh, I'll sign up for your race next year." But they'll see the pictures, the videos, the, the you know, and it'll give them that idea and say, "Oh shit, yeah, I could, I could totally go to Costa."
0: Yeah, well, I, I mean, just as somebody who gets to to be there to do the podcast, I think it looks absolutely spectacular. I'm so excited, and I'm not even getting on a bike, but it just looks incredible. The landscapes and the people and the nomad games and what an amazing country.
1: Oh, it's an amazing place. And and they're really making an effort to open it up to other countries. So we have we've had good support from the uh, our local contact with the government is the minister of tourism, and so they're they're supporting us in making this race happen as well. Which they've understood that this really is the possibility of getting people interested in the country, and I think it will have an impact.
0: Fantastic. Well, listen, thank you so much. That's uh, mind bogglingly mad. I think would be the way to sum that up. Um, it's going to be an amazing adventure, and yeah, thank you so much. Um, looking forward to getting started.
1: Yeah, me too. Could be out there very soon.
0: Thanks for listening to this edition of the Silk Road Mountain Race. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you also to our guest for taking part. And a huge thanks to Bjorn Westra, our editor, for doing so much work to pull it all together. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show and give us a rating or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about the race, have a look at the website, silkroadmountainrace.cc, and also see the show notes. You can follow the race on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks very much for listening, and we hope to have you along for the next episode.